Hi up here. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors of Seven Mile Road. Usually you don't see me up here because I'm usually down uh, in Malden. Is this okay? I'm down in Malden um, uh, leading that congregation down there. But it's awesome coming up here. The drive is fast. I just got here, just got up here. Um, we need some more time in there. Um, but it's been, it's been great um, just seeing you guys, especially this past week. Some of you guys were there at soccer nights in Malden uh, this past week for the last four days. Uh, a bunch of you guys were just there volunteering, giving your, your all to uh, these people in Malden, these families. And all I heard from parents throughout the whole week was just how grateful they were that, um, you know, these adults were coming in and just pouring into their kids and loving their kids and instructing their kids and coaching them. So thank you guys so much for giving up your time and just being there with us, uh, serving our people. We have a convenience store downstairs or something? All right. Um, thank you so much for doing that. And let's just continue to pray that God would continue to open up doors in our communities, Melrose, Malden, Wakefield, and all our communities, that we would be able to serve our people, uh, serve the people that live in these communities, and share with them the love of God, the gospel, and that they would come to know him. Um, this week, as we've been uh, hanging out with kids as you know, if for any of you guys that have kids or have hung out with kids, um, the more and more you hang out with them, yes, they're cute, and they're fun, and they say crazy things, and they'll say whatever's on their mind, but you also, there's the other side of, of that where you begin to realize that they are, maybe this is just me, but you begin to realize that they are very little sinners, right? Is that just me? You guys all kind of feel that too? They're just tiny sinners. Um, they disobey you at every chance. They will do whatever they want, not what you want for them. Uh, They will just go off and and run off uh, even if you tell them not to. I kind of know this firsthand just because uh, I have an almost one-year-old son now who's beginning to understand the concept of no and beginning to understand the concept of, you know, oh, my parents are disappointed in me. They don't want me to do whatever I'm doing. And so we'll look at him or we'll uh, give him that look or kind of say no and, and he'll get it. One of his favorite things to do is to sit on the ground and play with paper. I'm sure all of you guys kind of had that experience. He just loves paper. He doesn't discriminate against any kind. He loves tissue paper. He loves newspaper. He loves magazines. He loves uh, printer paper, everything. He loves all kinds of paper. What he will do with this paper is crinkle it up, rip it into little pieces, as small as he can get with his tiny fingers. He'll throw it on the ground, throw it in his hair, put it in his mouth. He just loves paper. And I tell him, I swear... I look at him, I come into the room, I see all the paper, I say to him, Ezra, no. I swear he looks back at me, winks, says what's up, and goes right back to doing whatever he's doing. I swear, that's exactly what, like, that's his, uh, that's what he does to, to me. And even when I put him in the crib, I swear he doesn't say it because he can't talk, you know, he's like babbling, but I swear he's saying to me, that's it, that's all you got, watch this. Ah, he starts crying and wailing, he does not want to go to sleep. He will impose his will on mine. He does not want to do what he's told to do. That's all of us, right? All of us. Our default setting is to disobey. Our default setting, left to our own devices, left to our own selves, no one telling us what to do, we will do whatever feels good for us, what feels right for us, what is easiest, what is the, um, the, the most comfortable thing. We never choose pain. We never choose the longest route, right? When's the last time you went, took the longest route to the grocery store? 
No one does that. Who does that? When's the last time you ran a marathon just for the heck of it? No one, right? You all, like imagine at the end of a marathon, there's nobody lining up. At the, when you cross the line, there's nobody handing you a medal. No one putting your picture uh, in the paper. No one's, no one's saying congratulations. Even if you tell them, they just kind of shrug it off. Oh, cool, whatever. Imagine if that was the case. None of you, none of us would run a marathon. There's no reason to. Do you guys know the first person that ran a marathon actually died after he ran the marathon? Right? If you asked him again, you think he'd want to do it all over again? No. He would not want to run the marathon again. All of us, when left to our own devices, will choose what's easiest. We'll choose what we want to do, our wills. Remember that, okay? Keep that in mind. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been in this last passion narrative in the Gospel. And Jesus, um, this is Thursday of the last week of Jesus' life, the day before that he was going to be crucified on the cross in a bloody, bloody mess, murdered before all people to see. Thursday night, he spent a time with his closest friends, his disciples, in a meal, a Passover meal. And he redefines this meal. He says, no longer is this meal pointing to some past action. I am now the bread. I am now the cup. This bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood spilled for you. He redefines it. He is now the Passover fulfilled once and for all. And Jesus takes this meal and he delivers it to his people. And as we recount these stories in Mark and these accounts in Mark, these eyewitness testimonies, what we're going to see and what you guys are going to feel as a congregation as we work through this in the coming weeks up until September, what you're going to feel is the mirror of God's word coming up strong. And you're going to see that as there are these characters, these people surrounding Jesus, as they fall into sin, they fall into deceit, they fall into betrayal, they fall into their own temptations, you're going to see the mirror of God's word come up. You're going to see yourselves in that mirror. And I want you guys to feel that. We want you to feel that. But our pastors and the pastor trackers that are going to be preaching to you guys in the coming weeks, we don't want you to remain there. We don't want you to remain there. We want you to look to Jesus and his glory and what he's done and who he is. Let's together look this last week of Jesus' life, Thursday night. Let's look at the, Je- the ransom that Jesus paid, the brutal, br- brutal ransom that Jesus paid. This morning, in this passage, Jesus is at the lowest point of his life, a dark dark place. It's nighttime, so physically dark, but his soul is emotionally in a dark and hard place. He's in the garden praying, and it's at this critical juncture that he gets to choose either obedience to the Father and to do what is really, really hard, or he gets to choose disobedience, to do what's easy, to take glory over death. Which one does he choose? I'm going to read the passage, Mark 14, 32 to 42. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get into it. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, these three, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Please remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, uh, prayed, 
if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found his disciples sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for moments like this where we get a glimpse into what was happening in your soul that we get this rare glimpse of who you are, how you work, and what was happening. God, we thank you for accounts like this, because all the more we are astounded by the work that you did, your perfect obedience to go to the cross, we're astounded by it. May you help us to sit under your word. May you help the gospel explode our hearts, explode in our hearts to worship you and praise you and to really taste and see that you are good. May you do that today. May your spirit be strong and mighty in working in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Before we get into it, the context of this, this, this passage right before this account that we kind of skipped over, but is going to lead us nicely into the Garden of Gethsemane is when after the Passover meal, um, all the all the disciples are, you know, having fun. They just had a great meal. They're lounging around, having some wine, whatever. They're, they're having some, some fun. Jesus kind of kills the party and says, guess what? I got a prophecy to tell you guys. Um, the shepherd is going to be struck, and all, its, all his sheep are going to flee from him. And the disciples took this offensively. Peter stands up uh, as, as the spokesperson says, no, not me. All these guys might fall away, but not me. Not me. If I have to go to death with you, I will not deny you. I will not disown you. And the other disciples obviously jumped in and said, yeah, me too, what Peter said. And at this meal, so keep that in mind also, and at, this, at the end of this meal, uh, the um, custom was to sing a psalm, Psalm 118. This is a psalm that was read to you guys at the beginning of the service. Psalm 118 was sung, and if you were listening to these words <clears throat> and imagining these disciples singing those words at this time, you would catch the irony of this whole situation. I'm going to read you some of these words. I hope you heard it. He says, all the nations surrounded me. Imagine the disciples singing this, Jesus singing this. All the nations surrounded me on every side. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. How fitting is that as he goes into the garden in this deep and dark moment of his life where he faces impending death. Right? He, he enters it singing this. He says, Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
The Lord is on my side. He is my helper. I shall look in triumph on all those who hate me. I'm going to touch on three things. I'm going to touch on what Jesus is really distressed and in anguish and troubled about. And I want to touch on how Jesus is completely obedient. And then in contrast to that, how the disciples are disobedient. Okay? So verse 32 to 34 uh, tells us that Jesus was distressed. This is something that's very rare in the Gospels in any account of Jesus' life. So late after this meal, late in the evening, when the whole city's asleep, right, they're full, they're going to sleep, they're, they're going to celebrate the next day, Jesus takes his disciples to the usual place. We know this is the usual place because in Luke's gospel, this account, he says that the disciples were used to going to this place on a regular basis. This was the place where the Jesus would take his disciples and pray and spend some quiet time uh, praying aloud to God the Father. So here, Jesus takes all his disciples from the table uh, in this house, goes out to the garden, takes his disciples and says to his disciples, okay, remain here and watch. And then he takes a small subset, right? We know about this small subset. His innermost, uh, closest friends of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, he says, okay, you guys, come a little further with me. We're going to go a little bit further, and we're going to pray. And when you hear that in the Gospels, it's happened twice before in Mark's Gospel, when you hear that in the Gospel where Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John and doing something, you know it's going to mark a very important point in Jesus' life. The last time this happened, Jesus kind of transfigured, kind of important. Jesus uh, showed his divinity, how divine he was, that he was fully God. In this passage, as Jesus is pulling away Peter, James, and John into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to reveal to them his full humanity, that he is fully, fully man. This should be completely new to us. We don't ever get a glimpse into uh, the vulnerable state that Jesus is in in this passage, right? Usually Jesus is the one in the synagogues teaching with authority. Usually Jesus is the one that's casting out the meanest uh, demons. He's the one that's uh, healing the sick. He's the one that's raising the dead. He's the one that has a plan and purpose and he knows exactly where he's going. But in this passage, Jesus is vulnerable. He is showing us a glimpse of his humanity. And if you didn't believe that Jesus was fully man, this passage should show that to you. What was he in anguish about? What was he troubled about? What was he distressed about? He was distressed about, all right, that's what you get for doing it on the iPad. It wasn't just a physical death that he was distressed about. It wasn't just the, uh, the pain that he was about to endure that he was distressed about or troubled about. It wasn't that he was going to be beaten very soon. He knew all this was going to happen because it was prophesied, right? What he was distressed about is this cup. What does he pray to God and say to his friends? He says, if this hour might pass from me, please do it. God, if you can remove this cup from me, do it. He is distressed over this cup. Why the cup? What's the cup? For all of us just to fill us, on, fill us all in on what the cup is. In the older covenant, this cup was a metaphor for the wrath of God. Right? So God is be- beautiful, holy, just. And for him to just let sin slide by 
would make him unjust, unholy. So God, in his justice, has to punish sin, and he does that through his wrath, and he does that through this metaphor of the cup. And throughout uh, the, the Old Testament and the Older Covenant, there's mention of this cup being given to nations or given, being given to particular people as an act of judgment. He gives it to a nation, and when the nation receives this cup, what that means for that nation is that nation is done. They're about to be wiped out. They're finished. They're no longer going to be under God's grace. They're not going to be protected. They're done. And Jesus is about to take this cup. In Isaiah 51, there's this prophecy about how Isaiah prophesied to Judah and said, he said these words, he says, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. There was impending judgment on Judah, and he says this, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. So this was the precedence, right? Jesus knew that in, back in the day there was this one time when God intervened on Israel's behalf and God's people and took away the cup from them that they were due and gave it to the nations. And so Jesus remembers this and he knows this. And his prayer is, if there's any way, God, if there's any other way that we can save your people, if there's any other way we can redeem your people and, and bring them out of darkness and into light, let's do that. Because this cup terrifies me. Why does it terrify him? Because it means that he now drinks the sin of all humanity, past present, and future. He, the sinless one, becomes sin for all people. For the pedophile, he becomes the pedophile. For the one that is adulterous, he becomes the adulterer. For the one that's covetous, he becomes the one that's coveting. He becomes all sin. And what that means is when he takes on that sin, his relationship with God the Father, his perfect triune relationship that they had from all eternity broken, shattered, finished, done. He's going to be abandoned by God, left for himself. And Jesus has never felt that, ever. And he is deathly afraid of that happening. So it's, it's this impending reality that Jesus is deathly afraid of. He had never known a time when he was apart from the Father, never. But it's about to come. And he wanted to avoid it at any cost. Just as an aside, if this doesn't increase your, uh, your confidence in the scriptures, I don't know what will. Because these disciples weren't just creating a fable. They weren't creating a fairy tale. Right? If they were creating a story that they wanted to um, kind of advertise throughout the nations to make themselves famous or to make some money off of this or to kind of see how far it gets, no way would they paint the God of their religion in this light. The God of their religion where that is just in anguish before the most important time of his life. Why would they do that? Only reason they would do that is because this is a true story, a true account. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a fable. This is not a story that somebody made up because it sounds good. This is an eyewitness account of his disciples of what happened in Jesus' life. May that increase your confidence in the scriptures. And in these weakest times, 
it's interesting to note that Jesus did have a gospel community, right? And I hope you guys are all plugged into one of our gospel communities. And I see, um, we, because we see in this passage that Jesus himself had this gospel community. He took his disciples and even the inner core to share his, uh, confess what he was going through. And to confess that he was in anguish and turmoil. And he asked his gospel community to pray for him in this troubling time. And if Jesus has a gospel community, man, all the more we need gospel community. We need brothers and sisters that we can cast our burdens on. He fears death just like any man. And it's in this important moment he takes his cares and concerns to his brothers, his friends, and asks them, to pray for him. Second, Jesus was completely obedient. Right? Verse 35 on, it says, going a little further, he fell on the ground. He prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. All things are possible for you, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' first impulses go to prayer. In the most distressing time of his life, he goes to prayer. He takes his friends and he says, pray for me, brothers. Pray for me. Remain here and watch. And he goes to his father and prays. You notice that he goes from um, kind of his um, outer relationship to his most inner, most relationships as he goes further and further into the garden, right? So he goes from the table with his friends, enjoying a meal, then he goes with his disciples, and then he goes with, uh, further into the garden with his closest disciples, the three, and then he goes into his most intimate relationship, which is with his father, one-on-one before God, his Abba. And you notice that he uses the word Abba. This word is a completely intimate word for someone that is your father or some rabbi that is very, very close to you, that you respect and you adore and that you have some relationship with. There is no record of anyone using Abba as a reference to God, talking to God. If you use that word, it would almost be blasphemous because in that day you saw God as holy other. And for you to use that intimate word of Abba, to call this person some relational, kind of like your biological father, would be blasphemous. But Jesus just rolls off his tongue. He says, Abba, Father. I'm distressed. I'm in anguish. I'm sorrowful even unto death. You can do all things. Remove this cup. Yet not what I will, but yours be done. Jesus prays to the Father. In contrast to that, what about us? Let the mirror of the word of God be held up to us. What about us? In our distressing times, and a lot of us are probably going through some really hard times, family and otherwise. Where's our first inclination? I know for me, it's to rely more on myself. Pull up my bootstraps, tie a little tighter, and get on with it, right? We look to ourselves in our most distressing times, in our most troubling times. But Jesus does not do that. He looks to the Father. He goes straight to the Father and says, Abba, all things are possible for you. Do what you will. What does he pray? Let's look at his prayer. He prays that if it's at all possible, that he could avoid what was coming, which was the cross. If you think about that for a minute, 
you should be asking, what? Jesus, you're not supposed to be saying these kind of things. You're not supposed to be praying that you avoid the cross because that's the point. You're supposed to be going to the cross. And a lot of people stumble on this one, but we got to hear this rightly and understand the thrust of his prayer. Jesus is not praying this so that he can shirk his responsibilities and shirk his callings and just kind of dismiss them. He's not being self-serving and just seeking for comfort. How do we know this? Because by the end of his prayer, we hear what his thrust is. See, he begins with this prayer. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer where he begins with understanding who God is. He says, God, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He declares that God is great and he is good. And then he shares his circumstances. Honestly, he lays it out for him. He says, God, remove this cup from me. I'm in deep turmoil. I'm in anguish. And then he ends this prayer and he lands here. This is where we know the thrust of his prayer, how, uh, what the thrust of his prayer is because he lands here. He says, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Right? He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to take your will, let it inform my decisions on how I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. He doesn't say, I'm going to take your will, I'm going to balance it out with my will and figure it out uh, what the best kind of, you know, marriage of the two is. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prays, prays against his own will and prays for the Father's will, God's will. That's the essence of obedience, right? When someone else's will becomes your will. For Ezra, my son, that's my son, for Ezra to obey me, he wouldn't be fully obeying me if I told him what to do and he said, well, I'm going to weigh the mitigating circumstances. I'm going to figure out uh, where I am in my situation and how I feel. And if the timing's right, I'm going to kind of implement what you suggest and we'll see what happens. That's not obedience. Obedience for Ezra would be to take my will and make it his will. And I pray that happens over and over again. <laughs> but that's obedience, right? That's obedience. It's not to weigh and balance, it's to take God's will and take God's word at what he says. And just so that his flesh is pounded out, Jesus prays this three times. He pounds it out of him and says, yet not my will, but what your, uh, let your will be done. Could you imagine what sort of work God can do through us if we were sincerely able to pray those words? If we're sincerely able to pray, yet not my will, God, but yours in all circumstances, please. Man, I would love to see God work through our church, through our people in that way. In contrast to Jesus' obedience, the disciples' failures. Verse 37 on, we see that the disciples fall three times. They fail three times to Jesus' three prayers and three acts of obedience. The disciples are snoozing. They had a great meal. They had food coma. It was a hot day. It was nighttime, middle of the night, 2 to 3 a.m., probably right around there, maybe a little bit later. All of them were exhausted physically. But Jesus, in his darkest moment, says, please remain here and watch with me. Pray with me. Pray for me. But none of them, none of them can keep awake. Even Simon, who was the one that said, yeah, even if all these other guys fall away, I'm going to uh, remain. I'm not going to deny you. Even if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you. 
And Jesus comes back from his prayer and points Simon out particularly and says, or for Peter out, and he doesn't actually use Peter's new name. He uses Peter's old name, Simon. That's just when you know he's really in trouble. He says, Simon, you can't keep watch for one hour. Pray, pray, pray. And Jesus is abandoned by his disciples. His prophecy comes true, right? His prophecy begins to become true. He was abandoned by his family early on in the gospel. He was abandoned by the religious rulers who shunned him. He was abandoned by the crowds who started to to walk away from him. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was abandoned by his closest three. And soon enough, and most importantly, he's going to be abandoned by his father. And that's where he was so distressed about. This is when the mirror of, the God, uh, mirror of God's word is held up to see that in our own selves, right? How many times do we vow to, to follow Jesus until the end and only a second later we fall flat on our face? That's a reality for all of us. I don't want that to discourage you. I want you to realize that's a reality for all of us. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are bent towards disobedience. Our hearts are uh, naturally in that condition. Left to our own devices, we're just like our father, Adam, right? We fall to temptation of our flesh. Verse 38, he warns, Jesus warns his disciples. He says, pray so that you do not fall into temptation. It's a warning to all of us who follow Jesus and think it's going to be easy, right? Jesus calls us to the narrow path. He calls us to the narrow road. It's going to be hard. He does not preach easy believism. He doesn't preach Go pray this prayer, say these words in this cadence, and then uh, go sign this card, and on your way out, please pick up your ticket into heaven, and we'll see you in a, a little while. Like, he doesn't do that. Jesus calls his disciples to a hard road that first leads to death before it leads to life. It's a road that is contrary to our na- uh, nature, our self-serving nature. He warns all of us that would follow him. And what's the temptation that he's saying you should watch out. What's the temptation? It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve, our first parents, went through in the first garden, right? The temptation to take their own life into their own hands instead of letting God's will work out in their life. In the second, in the first garden, Adam, completely disobedient to God's clear commands. In the second garden, Jesus, was completely obedient to God's commands. In the first garden, Adam, Adam was um, saving his life. In the second garden, Jesus was giving up his life. In the first garden, Adam fell into temptation. In the second garden, Jesus overcomes temptation. In the first garden, Adam, his sin leads to the death of all of humanity. In this second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' obedience leads to life for the rest of humanity, for all of us. To begin his ministry, you guys remember that Jesus also was tempted and tested, right? What was he tested with? He he was tested with the, the choice of skipping death and going straight to glory, right? Don't go to the cross, Satan was saying. Don't go. You have all the power to skip that. But just like he did then, and just like he does now, 
He knows his calling. He knows God's will for him is to go and suffer and die first for the sake of all of us. His obedience, Jesus' obedience to suffering secures our eternal joy forever. I want you guys to feel that. The easy thing here is to land and say, okay, everybody, now here's the application. Go, everybody go and be obedient. Do the right thing. Make all the right choices. When faced with a fork in the road, choose wisely. When faced with a moral dilemma, do the right thing. Go and be a better version of yourself forevermore. The end. That's the, that's the easy way to land this. But that's not the gospel. And that's not what this passage is going to, uh, that's not what the passage is telling us. Plus, all of that is not helpful because, I don't know about you guys, but the more and more you try to be obedient and faithful and perfect, the more and more you fail. I don't know if you guys all experienced that, kind of bent in you. But that's our propensity, right? Our propensity is to disobey. Just like my one-year-old, 10 out of the 10 times if given a chance, left to our own devices, we will choose sin over obedience, disobedience over obedience. This seems like discouraging news, but it's not. For all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's the best news possible because this should free you up completely. The weight that you're uh, trying to carry on your own to be perfect and completely obedient, always do the right thing, never make a mistake, that's not your weight to carry. In fact, you can't carry it because Adam was a painfully clear example of that. Our first uh, parent was broken. He couldn't carry that weight. Jesus was perfectly obedient. And that perfect obedience doesn't mean that we go and get smarter, try harder, get, uh, get stronger. Doesn't mean that. The gospel should make it clear to us that in our best case scenario, we are disloyal, sinful, and faithless. And Jesus, in his worst case scenario, is faithful, obedient, and servant of all. I'm not going to ask you to try harder, do better, get stronger, because that's not the gospel. Instead, I'm imploring you to taste and see that the Lord is good to you through Jesus. I'm imploring you to see that Jesus at his lowest point was faithful to the Father, even to death. I'm imploring you to see and and hear about this Jesus who did not shirk his calling and do what was easy and do what was comfortable. He went the hard road and did the will of God perfectly. I'm imploring you to see Jesus faithful even the hardest, most troubling time of his life. And then, as you see that, I'm asking you guys to pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not because you want to impress God or you want to pay him back for what he did or you want to kind of uh, pay it forward. No. Rather because you already know that Jesus completed it. That he he fully drank the cup that was due to you. The wrath that was coming to you, he removed it just like God did back in the prophecy of Isaiah. 
because you know the best thing for you is to do the will of God, the place of most joy in your life is to be in a place where God is working out his will through you and in you, because of that, pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. Don't get me wrong. We're all called to a life of, dis- uh, life of obedience. We're not called to just go willy-nilly out and just kind of do whatever and just kind of rest. But our obedience is coming out of, is born out of Jesus' perfect obedience. Without that, we can't be obedient. May your soul rest in Jesus' perfect obedience today. Rest in that. We no longer identify with the first Adam who was disobedient and who his sin led to death. If you trust in Jesus, we now identify with Jesus, the second Adam, the perfect man who was fully obedient even unto death and who cleanses us from all sin and gives us eternal life and eternal joy. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, he secured our eternal joy. Rest in that with me. Let's pray. Father, we're astounded. We're astounded by what you do. Every time we open up the scriptures, we are just amazed that you would go to the cross. God, even in your anguish and turmoil over what that meant, you knew the best place for you is where God's will is being done through you. And God, so I pray. I pray for our people. I pray for us that we will be a people that desire your will above our own. That we would lean on our big brother Jesus who was perfectly obedient and lean not on ourselves. That we would trust in God and not our own intelligence, our own understandings. God, I pray that you would beat that out of us. That you would help us to see that Jesus did what was perfect and that we could rest in that. And out of that, I pray that you would bear fruit in us, a fruit of obedience to you for the rest of our days. God, I pray that you would give us grace by driving us deeper into the gospel and what you've done through your son. Pray all these things in your name.